Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia, and I am here with a guest. I'm so excited. Um, can you introduce yourself? Thank you for joining. Hi. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm Zain Joukhadar. Um, I'm a Syrian-American writer. I am the author of two novels, The Map of Salt and Stars and The 30 Names of Night, which just came out last November of 2020. And I'm also the recent guest editor of Mizna's Queer and Trans Voices issue, which we're here to talk about today, right? Yes. Everyone, you have to read The Map of Salt and Stars if you haven't. It's I, I read it in like two days. Absolutely stunning. And, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous work. Um, and today I am going to focus a little more on the Mizna queer and trans voices issue. I am so excited because like for multiple reasons, I grew up in Minneapolis. Mizna was such an important resource for me as a, like a teenager, especially in early 20s. I, as a Saudi American, did not grow up with my Arab side of the family. Um, you know, I would have like occasional visits with them and it was not something that I had like consistent access to. So having Mizna in the area felt affirming and felt like, okay, this is a way to connect with a culture that I don't normally get to connect to. I was very excited to see last year that Mizna put out the Queer and Trans Voices issue, and um, Zane was guest editor on this issue, and I'm going to ask him to read his foreword. The foreword is in itself just a stunning piece. The entire collection is gorgeous, too. Um, everyone check it out. It's full of poetry, prose, um, essays by incredibly talented writers. Could you read the foreword? Yeah, absolutely. And if you want afterward, we can, the story of how the foreword got written is like a whole nother anecdote. So we can talk about that after, but. Amazing, <laughs> um, yeah. So the foreword is titled Worlds of Our Own Making. One, the camera lens is a dark blue eye. Four months have passed since my top surgery and a friend has asked to photograph me for a Muslim photo series. We're both in Los Angeles for a few weeks. This is in the before, so it is still possible to get on a bus or a plane with a duffel bag and a backpack, surfacing wherever my people are. I've come to LA for the medicine of my chosen family. I do not yet know that one month from now, this medicine, the hugs, the cooking for each other, the jacarit when they come upon each other in the street, will be ripped away by the rising tide of a global pandemic. I pour out coffee for us from the rakway I bought when I lived in Beirut. Golden light hangs in the spaces left by our laughing. In Southern California, even winter afternoons are glorious. My friend sets up their camera while I change into a shirt that buttons, sky blue. My scars are raised riverbeds of still forming keloids. My body is mine. My friend looks up from the green couch as I push my hand through the sleeve. I'm half finished, reveling in the bliss of cotton on skin. And they say, stay like that. A breeze riffles the leaves of the lemon tree in the garden. Inside this house, the world is merciful. Through this camera, our gaze is our witness. Two, power has twisted many languages to enforce the idea that queer and transgender people are other, that we are outside, beyond the borders of faith, society, words. We are denied the possibility of speaking, which is to say that we are denied the possibility of witnessing. When we are discussed, we are described as a contagion infecting an otherwise healthy body. Language is deployed to fabricate a history to which we have never belonged, not even when we survived it. 
Words are borrowed from colonial languages because our lives are painted as untranslatable. When translating into Arabic, queer and homosexual are often left in the original English. It's not like we don't slip out of Arabic all the time, out of English, out of French, but sometimes when I'm alone with language, I feel the held breath of these loaded elisions. I ask my friends for gender neutral pronouns in Arabic, in French, in Italian. We play with X's, with fresh vowels, with asterisks, with silences. And when we are alone, we shake the dust out of our languages so that we can talk among ourselves. Inventing and reappropriating language is an old and storied occupation for oppressed people. Gabriel Samarin, a doctoral student at the Sorbonne studying gender and language in Arabic literature, writes that Lebanese author Rashid al-Daif has used the words mithliya and mithliya to indicate same gender attraction, an alternative to the words redacted, redacted, redacted. This isn't the first appearance of the word mithli or mithliya. In 2003, a group of queer Arab American women, the Mujadara girls, published the word in a glossary of positive Arabic LGBTQ plus expressions in their online magazine, Bintan Nas. The Mujadara girls indicate words in the issue for bisexual and transgender people and an Arabic acronym for LGBT. Mim, 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 mim. Misliya, misli, muzdawij, muzdawija, mughayr, mughayra. Even the name of the magazine rejects any evil eye that would declare the Mujadara girls outsiders. When the gaze is directed inward, space becomes infinite. Sometimes it is enough to hold us. Three, queer and trans Swana, Southwest Asian and North African, Arab and Muslim writing has always been an integral part of our canons as oppressed, colonized or displaced peoples, as immigrants, as refugees, as members of various diasporas, in all our art, we have been queer by definition because our very existence is so often dissent. We queer language when we reclaim words that were stolen from us. We queer time and space when we invent new structures. We queer our work every time we speak truth to power and find ways of turning power's gaze back on itself. When oppressive systems are upheld by the narratives they prescribe and control, what is queerer than the gaze of the oppressed? Four. Ramadan arrives during the COVID-19 pandemic. Fasting and quarantined, I turned to trash television to pass the time. Uh, toward the end of season 12 of RuPaul's Drag Race, Iranian-Canadian drag performer Jackie Cox walks the catwalk in a stars and stripes hijab in the baya. Jeff Goldblum, guest judging the episode, remarks on her outfit, quote, is there something in this religion that is anti-homosexuality and anti-woman? Does that complicate the issue? End quote. This is the week that Serena Angelique Velasquez Ramos and Leila Palaez Sanchez, both trans women, are found murdered in a burned car in Humacao, Puerto Rico. Their deaths are part of a rash of killings of trans and gender nonconforming people in 2020, losses that will eventually include Nina Pop, Tony McDade, Dominique Remy Fells, Ryan Milton, Brayla Stone. Many are dead named in reports of their own deaths. It is no surprise that the most brutal contorted language is reserved for murdered black trans people. Even in death, power twists language to silence the oppressed. Later in the pandemic, on the fourth anniversary of the 2016 shooting at Pulse, a queer nightclub in Orlando, Donald Trump removes a federal rule protecting transgender people from discrimination in healthcare settings. At the time, the US has the most COVID-19 deaths of any country in the world, over 112,000 known deaths. Seemed like a big number then, huh? <laughs> Two days later, Sarah Hagazi dies of suicide in Canada, where she sought asylum after being arrested, 
imprisoned and tortured in an Egyptian prison for flying a rainbow flag at a Mashrul Leila concert in Cairo in 2017. It is June. When we rise up in defense of black lives, the machinery of the war on terror grinds its teeth on the bodies of our beloveds from Seattle to Minneapolis to DC to Syria. For some of us, the world has been ending every single day. We get up each morning and build it again with our hands, with our teeth. Five, the language we use to talk about a person or an event determines the stories that can be told about them. Who is the actor and who the acted upon? What are the issues and what is at stake? What is taken as fact? Who is granted the right to exist? Whose humanity is subject to assimilation? Who concedes the verb to identify while snatching away the verb to be? Who is a symbol and who is a human being? Who is referred to as a person and who is referred to as a body? Whose bodies are tossed first into the devouring mouth? Do they speak? Six, in my first career, I was an epigeneticist. This is how I learned not only that fear lives in every single cell of the body, but that it can be stored and passed on. Fear is intergenerational. Trauma and displacement are not only things that happen to us or to our ancestors, but events that move forward and backward in time, shadows that never leave even the tiniest pinheads worth of flesh in our bodies. If trauma and fear live in each of our cells, then our resistance too must bend time and space, must reach forward and backward through time. Our love and our healing pay no mind to borders, nor language, nor death. We reclaim daily how we see ourselves. When we create, the rules of space-time need not apply. We rewrite definitions of history and family. We use the pen, the brush, the clay, and the lens to say, no gaze can render us invisible, nor flatten our lives into dehumanized facsimile or crude spectacle. When Ahimsa Timoteo Budron says within these pages, quote, before this became a graveyard, lovers necked, elders walked with care, our dead keep on gathering above and below the soil, end quote. This is to say, Turtle Island is occupied land, but blood and tears do not purge that land of its history, nor of the wisdom of those who survived. When Kumeya Halim takes up the camera, her eye itself in its agency, its tenderness and its command to look is a radical and healing act. When Camille Abrahamian writes in spirals in Queer Motherhood is Speculative Fiction, telling us that this rug is red, yellow, black, then old, then magic, then burning, each return is a spell cast, time woven and unraveled, the portal ripped open through which both their child and their words pass in order to be born. As Joe Kadi writes in Canine Smiles, quote, scratch a queer long enough, invitingly enough, softly enough, and we'll tell our deepest and our first secret. We believe in magic. Seven, three years ago, Sarah Hagazi surges up from the crowd at the Mashru Leila concert beneath a gray evening. In this photograph, a flag stretches between her open hands. Under the stage lights, she is luminous as any moon. Sarah is open-mouthed and grinning, the flag rising in her fist, the arc of her a single joyful shout. I am no longer trying to say, I am like you. I am saying, you are like me, Mithili. As a guest editor, it has been my task and my privilege to make a space for us in the pages of this issue. But I would be remiss if I did not tell you that we have been here in Mizna the whole time. Some of the authors herein, including Joe Kadli and Ahimsa Timoteo Bodron, were present in the very first issue of Mizna more than 20 years ago. Representing ourselves in our art has always been a matter of life and death for us. 
the homophobic and transphobic gaze is not only metaphorically or discursively violent, it is deadly. And to see ourselves reflected in our art is at times the best and only healing power that we possess. Survival requires us to hone and pass on this skill as well as to coalition build because our collective survival is bound up together. Here in this issue, I've attempted to make a space where we can set down the burden of justifying ourselves so that we can be in conversation with each other, so that we can hear one another, so that we can see one another. By freeing our gaze, we create a framework for others to turn their eyes toward freedom. As far back in history as one may travel, we have existed and we have aimed our looking both outward and inward. We have dissented, we have resisted, we have declined to participate in our own oppression, even if doing so required us to transform space-time itself to make room for our existence and a future of our own imagining. Within these pages, we not only exist and are loved and are beautiful, we create magic. No need to fear the eye of the oppressor. We are our own Nazar. We have made and remade our blueprints for survival. All along, we have been turning our eye toward worlds of our own making. Oh, thank you. I read that pretty recently again, because I read it right when I received the issue in the mail, and I read it again recently, and hearing it in your voice is a whole new experience, so I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm, it's funny, uh, every time I read it, I, I remember, you know, the process of, of actually getting to that, because for me, it was really... Um, it sounds very sure, you know, when I read it, but I remember a conversation that I had uh, with with a close friend and saying to this particular friend, you know, because this was the summer of 2020. Yeah. And all of the things that I wrote about in there were happening, you know, and I was just like, I feel like we collectively are just getting pummeled. Everybody that I love, I felt was just getting pummeled by so many different forces. Um, yeah not not just the pandemic but like really violent oppressive forces and i just was like how do i get from this place of like fear and grief and um just collective like uncertainty about the future um let alone all of the just logistic challenges to, to our survival that so many of us were facing including me how do i get from that place to a place of like collective joy and resilience and celebration that i wanted to foster in this issue it took a lot of um, like introspection and, and just having conversations with other people about what we were going through to get to the point where I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to start from a moment for me that was that was um, at least like easeful, you know, and then make a place for that, like suffering and grief that we were feeling while not letting it dominate the narrative. Right. But it was a. Uh, what a summer that was, you know? It was. It really was. Um, and all of those, yeah, all of those elements really come through in these pages. I mean, the like you said, the resilience and the collective. Not, not okay, resilience. When I say resilience, sometimes I'm like, no, we don't have to be resilient. But I mm. guess, like, what I mean by that is, like, the collective power that we do have and that we find within ourselves and with each other while exactly, also yeah. And, yeah and like I feel like you so beautifully convey the power that we have while also like we don't have to have an extraordinary amount like we shouldn't have to have an extraordinary amount of resilience that others don't have like mm -hmm. we are not this shouldn't the onus shouldn't be on us but even so we are so amazing and powerful together 
those two elements just really came through so forcefully uh, for me when reading this forward. It felt so affirming, so the validation that I think us, like a lot of us, need right now when we've been so isolated. And this is a good reminder that we are definitely not alone, even though we have been physically for so long. Mm-hmm. A, a line in the foreword that I just cannot get out of my head is, our lives are painted as untranslatable because that just goes even beyond the linguistic element. Like so many, there's just so much of society that has deemed our lives untranslatable to anything that they can understand. Um, so that, I just mm-hmm. thought that line was so beautiful. Um, and yeah, do you want to, yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want to talk a little more about like the development of the forward and how you ended up arriving at what you did? Yeah. It's funny because again, for example, one of the, one of the, the things that I knew that I wanted to talk about was language because the ways that we use language are not ever neutral. There's a lot of really amazing work being done, especially by writers, but not only by writers, I think, trying to like find or replace or or tweak language in order to make it a place where we can sort of, a place we can live in, a space that's mm-hmm. big enough for us to live in. I mean, I, and I think that that's like really, it sounds really metaphorical, but in the end, it's I think it's actually very literal because if you don't have language for your experiences, it becomes very hard to actually make yourself visible, not only to yourself, but to each other, to find each other, to talk about what you're going through. And so how do you do that without pointing to what already exists, even if what exists is really, some of at least some of what exists um, in terms of language is so oppressive. Like the, the words that I redacted in the foreword, it just sort of felt like, um, as we were thinking about how to uh, how to introduce this issue, you know, there were conversations that we had um, among the, the the staff, among um, each other, just talking about like, okay, well, we do have to at least be prepared for pushback, prepared for the fact that some of Mizna's readers might not be thrilled with the framing of this issue that they may, you know, we didn't know how people were going to react, and we anticipated. We actually, I think that we anticipated more negative reactions than we actually got. And maybe that's just because we're used to like existing in the world slash online and we know what can happen. Some of what I wrote in the foreword was also informed by wanting to be aware of the framing that folks might be coming to this issue with and then trying to like flip that and turn it back on itself and, um, and, and like reframe it. You know, so it was like, I'm, you know, there's an awareness, I think, in the text of that framing that people might be entering the issue with and what they might be expecting. And then, you know, using that um, awareness to actually subvert that framing, which I think, honestly, as writers, I know it for me as a writer is something that I I aim to do in a lot of my work where I'm like, okay, yes, you know, you can come to my work with with this particular this particular uh, expectation, let's say but I'm going to flip your expectations and I'm going to try to turn the gaze of power against itself back on itself so that it's my gaze or our, in this case, in this issue, I tried to let it be our gaze on each other, that we were seeing each other, that we were, that we were, you know, among one word you might use to describe, I guess, is family, or at least among 
mm-hmm. can in some way, you know, that we could talk to each other without having to constantly push back against this outside gaze, this this sort of oppressive framing that would never allow us to have the kind of conversations that we really need to have with each other, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but like I used to live in Houston and there was this Arab American community center. I wanted to start a LGBT support group there. And they, long story short, after a long conversation with the president and like some of the board members, they shut it down and they said that the community isn't ready. And that, mm. that statement just, it really hit as like, okay, so you're not seeing us as part of the community. If you're saying the community's not ready, but right. there's a lot of us are ready because we want this. Um, it's like um, that was a few years ago. And seeing Mizna make the space that they did was just such a relief to see. Like this issue coming out is such an affirmation of like, we are part of the community, whatever that is, you know, the, mm-hmm. the larger. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah um, we both are our own community as queer folks. And then the fact that this Swana centered organization made this space was just really exciting to see. Um, and it was a great, just yeah. like such a great contrast to what I saw a few years ago. Um, I'm glad because I yeah. mean, Mizna really, I have to say like, Mizna has been around for a long time, right? Yeah. Mizna has been around for more than 20 years. And there were, as I said in the foreword, there are literally people in this issue who mm-hmm. were in the very first issue. So like queer and trans writing has been a part of Mizna for as long as it's existed really. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, I think that it's one of those really upsetting, frankly, things that serves power, right? That serves structures of power that happens when I know that this happens a lot to me when I speak in any capacity um, as a person who like, you know, embodies multiple identities at once, being trans, being queer, being Arab, being et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where like in order to be listened to in one capacity, power often tries to strip me of some other identity. So for example, a lot of the time, if I'm talking openly about my queerness or about my transness, there's there can be efforts, some folks can make efforts to try to delegitimize my Arabness or my Muslimness. Um, I mean, and we can talk about how it may be more convenient for like that, whatever particular person is talking, but it's, it's also when it, like, when you really look at it, who does that serve? It serves power structures that try to paint queerness as exclusively belonging to whiteness for starters. I mean, this is something we can talk about when it comes to like Israeli pinkwashing too, right? Where queer Palestinians get erased constantly because that serves the oppressors, right? Uh To say that queerness can only exist in the context of the settler colonial state. So I think that once we see those things for what they are, it becomes, and once we name them, you know, it becomes a lot easier for us to at least say, okay, that's a framing that you're using for one particular reason that serves power. It doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve us. Yeah, that's so real. And I think, yeah, we're seeing that so much. Like you brought up the pinkwashing. We're seeing this narrative come up again uh, over and over where people are like Israel is the one safe haven for queer folks and you're like what about queer Palestinians um right yeah uh 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see Mizna highlighting the voices that are highlighted in this issue and naming them um, in this context. And it's just very exciting. Um, so shifting a little bit, um, you mentioned in the foreword um, that you were an epigeneticist. And I'm kind of curious, like, how that past work has informed your writing, because I feel like it I feel like there is a lot that you have been able to use from that time to... I haven't... I still I still need to read the 30 names of night, but, like, the map of salt and stars, I feel like there is definitely a reference to, um, I guess, inherited fear, inherited trauma, I think, also in your foreword, that something that we as queer people... And as people of, like, first-generation folks who are children of immigrants, like, we all experience that. And I'm curious to hear from your end, like, how has that work informed your writing? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think that, or like, initially when I first left science, mm-hmm. I didn't want to have anything, I didn't want to think about it at all, you know. Um, gotcha. I mean, academia and like surviving academia is like a, is a whole, that's a whole mood, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it definitely taught me something even just existing within that system too, you know, about like how to exist within a system that's like not built for you at all, which at times was for me and has been for many other people that I know really traumatizing, but I am grateful that I was able to, some of the stuff that I studied that I was able to take it with me in a way that this particular aspect about like intergenerational trauma being one of those those things that's continued to stick with me I think because it's so how do I say I don't know I guess it it shows up you know even whether we think about it in a scientific way or like more of just a way where we're you know anytime that we talk to our elders or our parents our grandparents anytime that we think about the things that our ancestors survived we we know on like a lived experience level and sometimes a bodily level that like these things are still with us. Um, but one thing that in science, you know, get, you study a lot the actual effects of of trauma, of starvation, of of you know these negative things that happen to to people. But you they yeah. never really at least when I was um, in science, we never really talked about the flip side of that, which is that if you survive something like that's the thing that the body remembers ultimately is the surviving because yeah. that's what's use that's what's useful right like mm-hmm. you your body remembers okay you know we survived by doing this and that could be you know that coping mechanism could be good it could be bad but it remembers how you survived and on yeah. some level like there's also that intergenerational wisdom that gets passed along too and i don't think that we understand that at all i mean i i think that we would be served, you know, to think about it more um, and to be, to maybe put that in the center when we talk about trauma, because so often, you know, I, ex- I explored this in the map of salt and stars and, and also in 30 names that like so yeah. much of our energy gets sort of directed toward talking about trauma as a, as a thing that obviously carries, can carry a lot of stigma, can carry a lot of, the way that gets talked about can often be really, not necessarily geared toward actually helping or, 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 um, or serving survivors of that trauma, if you will. Um, And I think that oftentimes we could be better served by thinking about like the, the wisdom in surviving, as opposed to focusing on the, 
the thing that the negative aspects of the thing that happened. I mean, those obviously we need space to talk about that. We were just talking about this with the forward, right? Like those, we can't mm-hmm. just sort of sweep those things under the rug, but our perspective on our own like strength and empowerment um, opens up a lot when we start to think about like, Hey, we have survived a lot. Yeah. And like in the map of salt and stars, um, you bring up the fact of like how a person can rely so heavily on their own imagination as a coping mechanism. And I, I find that very powerful. So yeah, I really, I love that. I love that way of shifting the narrative because we usually talk about like trauma bonding as a unhealthy thing that we as, for example, queer people do, queer swana people do. But on the flip side, trauma bonding can be like if if we reframe it and see it as like we're using all of the strength that has been passed down to us to relate to each other and to form these beautiful collectives like that's also like that's something to be celebrated you know it's it's something i've been thinking about a lot lately the idea that uh you know that like at some point we often expend so much of our energy just on surviving and and it often prevents us from um like telling new stories about where we want to go like from imagining futures that don't include these um oppressive forces that don't include where we've built a future that has given us the space to not just to survive but like to actually find new ways of relating to each other outside of these like violent traumatic forces um yeah and I, I do think like returning to some of what I talked about in the forward that like it is so incredibly important to have spaces where we can have conversations about like what comes after <laughs> the mm-hmm. trauma and the oppression, you know, yeah, um, that we can really only have with each other because as long as there's like people listening in that are that we know are like ready to attack us even for existing, we don't get to talk about what comes next. Like we don't get to talk about like, okay, you know, there are maybe like maladaptive coping mechanisms that we have that have allowed us to survive, but that we may not want to bring with us into like the next iteration of the world that we're trying to create for ourselves. But, and there's also a million beautiful, amazing things that we can build, but like we never get to have those conversations if we're constantly talking back to our oppressors, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, we're still, I mean, it's, Talking back to the oppressors, yes, there's a time and place for that, but it's also like sometimes we need to ignore them and just focus on each other and not give them all of our energy. Um, And that's a really good reminder. Amazing. I could talk to you for hours. I want to ask about like so many other things. (laughs) Um, That's the one annoying thing about these podcast episodes. I'm like, uh... Um, anyway, so I was wondering if you have anything coming up, like project-wise, anything that you're planning, um, stuff you're working on, anything you want to share? Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, yeah, up until recently, I was still doing some events for 30 Names of Night, because that just came out last fall, and also doing events for this anthology that I'm a contributor to called Kink that came out in February and was edited by Aro Kwan and Garth Greenwell. That has a lot of really great queer and trans writing in it. And it's a it's an anthology basically exploring like sex, but not just sex, more also just desire and embodiment and a lot of really cool things. And then I'm um, I'm sort of in the midst of uh, 
writing a couple of novels, one of which does incorporate some like science and science fiction-y elements. So I'm like, it's very early stages, so I can't really talk a lot about that, but I'm definitely deep in the like Ooh. drafting cave, so. <laughs> Ooh, intriguing. I'm really excited to read um, 30 Names, The 30 Names of Night. Do you wanna, since it's, I mean, I know you've had to say this like a million times already, but can you give a brief synopsis? Oh, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay, so The 30 Names of Night is essentially the story of, at the start of the novel, unnamed protagonist who is a transmasculine, non-binary person, Syrian-American, Muslim, living in New York City, um, taking care of his grandmother who is ill. Um, and he lost his mother, who was an ornithologist, five years before the story begins. Um, and she was killed in a fire that was sort of under suspicious circumstances and most likely uh, a hate crime for the fact that she was Muslim and was trying to help essentially found uh, a mosque in the area. This narrator who's in the midst of choosing his new name and trying to come out to his family is an artist himself and is, is blocked. And he keeps going to the neighborhood of little Syria that now is, you know, there's like three buildings left of this neighborhood in lower Manhattan. Um, but he keeps going there because his mother um, who studied birds, right? She was obsessed with a Syrian American bird artist who lived there and disappeared um, in the 1940s when the, when the neighborhood was demolished, except for those last three buildings to build the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Um, and he ends up finding her journal, this, this bird artist's journal, and discovering that this bird artist is actually linked to his family, to his mom and, and to his grandmother in really unexpected ways. Um, and so there's basically these two stories of this unnamed character who's trans, who eventually chooses the name Nadir, and this Syrian-American bird artist who, as it turns out, was queer, um, living in the 1930s in New York City. Um, and a lot of it is wow. about like, our ancestors and the history of, of Syrians in New York and Syrian Americans who are more recent immigrants, as well as like what it was like for queer and trans people in that earlier era in like the thirties and the forties. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, that's basically in a nutshell. <laughs> I am so excited to read it. Um, also, oh yeah, I wanted to ask, um, how can people follow you online? Um, what, do you want to plug your socials? Sure, yeah. I mean, my website is just zainjuhadar.com. You can find me on Twitter at zainjuhadar, Instagram, zain underscore juhadar. Yeah, come awesome. follow me, hang out, find me. Yeah, <laughs> sweet. So we are now going to shift over to talking to another guest who's here, um, who works with Misna. I'm really excited to talk about this organization that played a really essential role in my earlier life when I was living in Minneapolis. It's just such a great resource. Um, thank you for joining us. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Nyla Taman, and I am program director at Misna. And uh, we're based in the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Awesome. Midwest, woo. Yes, Midwest. Yeah. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about MISNA, what, what MISNA does as an organization? Yeah, so we are a multidisciplinary uh, platform for Southwest Asian, North African, Arab, and Muslim artists. We do kind of our main uh, programming is we have an Arab Film Fest that we've been doing for 14 years, and then a literary journal, Misna, Prose, Poetry, and Art, Exploring Arab America, uh, which we've been doing for 20 plus years. Yeah, yes. So, holding uh, it down. 
God, so... And then we do, like, kind of other arts and, like, culture stuff around the cities. Like, uh, there's these, like, all-night art things called Northern Spark, and we'll do, like, projects and bring an artist out and things like that. Northern Spark is one of my favorite things ever. I miss it. Gosh, you even know the names of everything because you're from here. Yeah, I know. It's so cool because, like, when I was living in Minneapolis, um, Mist, I mean, Mizna was definitely, like, well-publicized and stuff in the Twin Cities, but I feel like over the years it's just gotten more and more well-known outside of the Twin Cities, and it's just... Like, now now I'm living in New York, and I hear and see things about Misna, and it's just, it makes me feel like I'm at home again every time I hear it mentioned. And, like, I know several people here in New York who have, like, done things with Misna, contributed work for um, collection, like, collections of writing, and, yeah, so it's it's been great to just, like, see Misna pop up so much um even after i left minneapolis and see um things that are still going on from your perspective what was it like working on the queer and trans voices collection it was super awesome to have zane at the helm of that um just even from the get-go you know it was a really interesting issue to put together uh during a pandemic you know it's like we started and we had like the call for submissions out and then you know, really trying to be intentional and talk to Zane and George and the Mizna team about like, oh, we should extend the deadline because the world is maybe ending and, you know, Mm -hmm. just trying to give people the time and the space that they needed to make the issue what it is. And it's so powerful as it is. Um, It really is. We couldn't have done that without like the team we worked with. Yeah. Has this been like in the works for a long time or at in conversation for a long time? Um, yeah, it's definitely something that we've wanted to do for a long time. We've definitely, we've done some different themed issues and then kind of expanding on the idea of a theme is kind of like this voices or kind of takeover um, instead of opposed to like a theme because it's kind of more than that, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, it's been in the works for a while and then kind of 2020, it came together, starting with really Zane is the one who kind of led us with like a really intentional uh, call for submissions and the forward and all the work that they put into it yeah yeah just stunning an amazing team like I mean really everybody came together so hard at such a difficult time you know that like I couldn't believe that we actually pulled it off and it really just speaks to how amazing not just I mean the staff is amazing and also the writers everybody that submitted like we did extend the you know, uh, the submissions window and, um, and stuff like that. But really, I feel so honored that folks like trusted us with their work in such a difficult time. Uh, that's something that really stayed with me. That, that says a lot about Misna. I feel like the, the people, um, I think people have found a safe space in that organization. Just seeing this issue, holding it in my hands at such a difficult time was such a highlight. It sounds like it was both a really difficult time to put this together and also so vital. Yeah, and like with myself, it's like, there's definitely a good like through line with my own queerness, like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being locked up for so long (laughs) and also working on this issue and stuff uh, really helped me kind of discover my own queerness and that I'm non-binary and things. So definitely like really essential 
uh, through line for like so many different reasons, like high level and low level, I feel like. I've heard so many accounts of like people or just ref be just being able to reflect and kind of come to terms with their gender identity like during the pandemic and I think same here also same here um it, having so much less externalized uh noise throughout this time has been a contributor yeah um mm -hmm. yeah and there's something like weird about like I don't know you know covering you know the things that we had to do to protect ourselves and each other, like, you know, our mouths covering and stuff. And then it's like, wait, why did I feel like my mouth was like a public thing? Because I was like always speaking or something, but oh, I don't wow. know. Being able to like take back like some things, you know, in public was really impactful, I feel like. Yes. Oh, it's so interesting. I like that. That's a really good point. Covering up our facial expressions and how it like, I don't know. I was catcalled a lot less. I was told less. I was told less what to do with my mouth. I was told less to smile, obviously. I mean, we all can relate. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's something to all of that. Nyla, can you talk a little more about your background? And yeah, what, what was it like? I guess, I don't, I don't know. How long have you been in the Twin Cities? What it was like growing up there? Anything you want to share? Yeah, um, so I've been in the Twin Cities most of my life. I also lived in Wisconsin for a while and England for a while. Uh, my family kind of moved a little bit or around a bit, but my family um, came in the 70s from Egypt, or my dad's family, and then they ended up in Wisconsin and, and founded like the North Wisconsin Islamic Center, which is where wow. I spent a lot of time as a kid. Um, the only mosque in northern Wisconsin. Gosh. <laughs> um, so I spent a lot of time there as a kid and also in the cities. But yeah, there's a lot of good art in the cities. And I grew up like going to the Walker and stuff a lot, but also going with my kid to, to the film fest and like meeting people that, you know, and being in an environment that was a lot more for me than like the Walker was and stuff and how that was really like impactful for me, especially the film fest as a kid. I love the film Fest. Best film Fest. So good. Yeah. Yes. It is really fun. It's so fun. Um, I, yeah, I used to go. Um, definitely miss it. And yeah, do you want to talk a little more also about what do you get to do as program director um, at MISNA in general? Yeah, so we're a pretty small team. So we kind of have our hands in like a lot of different pots. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do like some admin things, some journal editing, which I've never really had a ton of experience with, but I really love words and I love, you know, being taught about how words go together. And then a lot of like cultural events around town, like uh, we're planning a series, a poetry series with the Walker this summer, as well as, you know, a lot of it's been, you know, kind of adjusting with COVID and going online. Like I've been learning a lot about like DRM fees and um, how films can be watched online versus like how to set up a webinar with four people or 12 people like we had for the queer issue, I think, um, and how to make the webinar go smoothly and transition. So I guess a lot of my time over the last year has been spent kind of adjusting to this new virtual realm. But there are so many benefits, like 
how do we get captioning and make it affordable and things that we've really been able to like figure out and implement and that's been like really rewarding and probably long due so it's been good to like have the space to figure out how to make those things happen and be more accessible that's awesome you're going to the walker has Mizna done other stuff there yeah i would say we've done some things in the past and we're always concerned about equity with our partnerships especially with institutions so yeah i would say we probably have better like uh guidelines now for our participation like we would like to platform artists and make sure that it's done in a way that feels safe to us. And also we would like an institutional like stipend because, you know, we, our work needs to be valued. Of course. Um, with money. Also. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, this series this summer, we have some really good local um, poets on the lineup, including Mohab Salaman, who used to work at Mizna's program director and used to live Ooh. in the same building that I live in, who has his first poetry collection coming up. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really funny. That's like, funny. He used to live That's... here, and he used to have my job, and he's also Egyptian-American. So what? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going I'm on not with sure why that, happened, that I building. Like yeah, I like it, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, is there anything that you want to mention? Anything else you want to mention that Mizna has going on right now, or is in the works we just came we just published our first ever comics issue it's fully comics um mm, edited by leila abdel razak um and it's really awesome it has some really so interesting cool. features we've never done before we have like a poem that like folds up three pages so you oh, like, wow. read it upwards. amazing yeah and then like we have arabic language and english comics so we didn't want to kind of put the Arabic on one side of the book and the English on the other. We wanted them to be together and interdispersed. So yeah, I love that. Some, yeah, it's like important for them to be like viewed side by side. So there's a, a little person in the book that indicates when you should flip the book upside down and then you kind oh of God. read it from right to left and then you flip it again. We got it from Samando. They've done this before. So we kind of uh, borrowed it from them for this. And it's really cool. Ah, that's so fun. I love that. I'm going to check that out. How how can people follow Misna and then your own personal socials, if you want to uh, say that? Like, how can people follow you? Totally. Um, yeah, Misna. I think we're Misna.ArabArt on Facebook. And then Misna underscore ArabArt on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then Mizna.org. We also have this cool film series that's online right now. That'll be through the summer. It's like um, $5 tickets and you get to watch a film online. And we typically have like a discussion after it. So check that out. Awesome. And then you can follow me and my visual art. Everything underscore coming underscore up underscore roses. Oh, cute. I like that. <laughs> thank you well thank, thank you so you. much this is so awesome this was so great thank you both for being here i i was telling zane how surreal this is for me to like talk to him talk to like someone from misna which is a really important organization and like zane's book was really important to me um so all of yeah this Aww, this is just thanks. like yeah this was just such a great 
culmination of so many good things. So thank you both. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad that we could do it. Yeah. And I'm glad that this, like, we face so many hurdles with this issue. Like, <laughs> it just makes me happy that it's out yeah. in the world. We, I don't know if, um, Naila, did we want to tell the story about how we almost got censored? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Tell me. We didn't talk I'm about that yet. <laughs> reveal time. I mean, do you want to tell it or should I tell it? <laughs> you should tell it i can jump in if you need it but you should tell it okay okay i mean in a nutshell it was basically that like we had everything kind of ready to go and sent everything to the printer and as far so like the way that i heard the story was basically that the printer originally refused to print it saying that it was like I forget what the word they used was basically that it was like obscene or something what and um so we don't know if it was the art or the text, but eventually what happened was um, someone at the printer kind of, uh, someone who was higher up at the printer kind of like stepped forward and was like, no, this is art. You need to print this. But it was pretty scary for a while there. God. Yeah, it was, it was really like out there and we've used this printer before and it was just like, oh, okay, I guess we're being censored now. What the so this, like, hell? Very, amazing literary journal but it did go through and stuff but at first it was like how do we find another printer like the type of like offset printing we do is like with pantone is kind of specific like we like our journals to look nice and it just really left a bad taste of course you're like what's so different about this issue than others that makes it obscene quote unquote like just because it's queer (laughs) yeah oh my god we're not good but thankfully, you know, mm-hmm. it's printed, it's beautiful, and we really gorgeous. took a note in, like, we need to make sure everyone feels really safe. We did two readings for this issue, actually, and we had every contributor, or all of the authors, in one of the readings, so it was pretty cool. One of the readings had, like, 14 oh people, like, a round robin <laughs> style. <laughs> oh. um, and then all the credit for that goes to this, like to, to you, Naila, to, to Ruba, to everybody like behind the scenes with the logistics that like made that work because that was magic. <laughs> oh, that was such a beautiful day. It could have gone horribly wrong, but it was very smooth. We even had like, <laughs> we had people in so many different time zones on that reading and everyone was just so calm. We did. That's that in itself is hard. The time zone. Yeah. <laughs> we had uh, Omar Sakar in Australia, like sent us because the time zone just could. It was impossible yeah. um, for him. But we had a video for Omar, and people were just like, "Wow, that was that video was like amazing. Like so, like one of the highlights of the reading ended up being this video that." was so peaceful with like the sunlight coming in and just like Omar has this amazing reading voice and people were just like, that was like so awesome. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it works with technology. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to say, I guess that like after, you know, the censorship scare and stuff, it was really like, okay, we really need to make sure all of these authors are very safe and they feel good. Like being yeah. part of a reading. So Zane put together this like awesome kind of safety toolkit and sent it out to everyone. And it was just so mm-hmm. thoughtful and necessary and just really the thought that went into it and every aspect was just so deep and uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like every step was just so well thought out and intentional. 
I think I really wanted to make sure, I think we all wanted to make sure that like, you know, when we're doing this, because really the issue was also like a way, we were talking about this earlier, Alia, that like we wanted to make a space where we could imagine better things for ourselves. And so like that has to extend to every aspect of the execution, like including extending time to folks when the world was on fire or, you know, yeah. sending out the safety toolkit, stuff like that. It was like, none of this, I think it was really important to all of us that none of this yeah. feel rushed or exploitative or bad, you know, like we, we had to like do it in the way that was best and safest for everybody. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, it sounds like every, yeah, every element was just like nurtured in the way it deserved. Um, and you can see that holding it in my hand I, I can just like see all of the love that went into it yeah oh, thank you yeah. Yay. <laughs> thank you both again this was just so meaningful to talk to both of you um so thank you again um thank you all to the listeners thank you for talking thank you so much for having us podcast yeah it's really nice same here podcast ever really i'm so honored Ooh, cool well, we are lucky that to be your first podcast. <laughs> so um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs and email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. 